Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to Black Women Amplified, the podcast. Your host, Monica Wisdom Tyson, brings you downloadable conversations that matter to women around the globe. We discuss all things black girl magic, amplify our voices, and transform our challenges into triumphs. Monica calls on her league of extraordinary women to push our boundaries, share their expertise, and stories of personal transformation. Welcome your host of Black Women Amplified, Monica Wisdom Tyson. Welcome to the Black Women Amplified podcast. This is your host, Monica Wisdom, and I am so excited that you're here with me today. I get to have an incredible conversation with an adventurous woman who has lived around the world, Miss Cassandra Anthony. She shares her knowledge with students in the Netherlands, Italy, Tanzania, Albania, and Denmark. Her love for the arts and amplifying the voices of Black creatives led her to the Burning Man Project in Black Rock City. She served as the event and program coordinator for the Black Burners Project. Cassandra is here with us today to share her remarkable journey through arts and education and our two-part conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ms. Cassandra Anthony. Hello, everybody. This is Monica Wisdom, your girl, your host of the Black Women Amplified podcast, and I am so excited about this conversation today. I finally get to have a conversation with a Black girl about Burning Man. We'll get more into what Burning Man is, but I want to say hello to you, Miss Cassandra Anthony. I'm excited for you to be here. I've been anticipating this conversation since Oshunlade got back from Burning Man and he told me about everything. And I just want to say thank you for taking such good care of him. He just remembers that. He was like, she took care of me. And Really? Oh, yeah, girl. <laughs> What did he say I did? No, I want to know. We'll have that conversation offline, but... Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> he came back and said some great things about the project, about you, and about his experience and the difference. But I want to talk to you about it because, like you said, this is your first burn. I can't wait to get into that conversation, but I want to know more about your story and about you. So I'm from Atlanta, and... You know, I fed up with everything happening in the U.S. and not being able to just get my head above water in life. I made the move to be with my partner overseas in the Netherlands. And so I went to the Netherlands, attended university there. And then I went through a few European countries and I did a practicum at an international school here in Denmark a few years ago. And I was like, oh yeah, I need to come back to this school. It's play-based learning. I need to take these skills that I'm getting in Scandinavia to be able to bring it back to our black and brown children because they deserve this type of education and they deserve educators who are trained to facilitate this type of learning. So that is how I'm back in Denmark but I am itching to come back to the U.S. <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, the lack of melanin is, you know, the lack I, of I cannot imagine the food you're missing. <laughs> Let me tell you, I went, so July, July was the first trip that I took back to the U.S. 
since the pandemic. Okay. And one of the first places I asked a friend of mine to take me was Popeye's. <laughs> <laughs> Love that chicken from Popeye's. <laughs> yeah, and it was so salty because my palate wasn't used to it anymore. And I was like, oh my God, it's so good, but it's so soft. I tore it up though. I ate every single bit. You know? Oh my God. I can't. <laughs> I imagine you just sitting in the car with the box on your lap, like, ah, I can't get enough of this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was trying to be all like cool and like not one in the car. Had I been by myself, I would have eaten and driving. But... <laughs> yeah. Now, are, so you're a teacher, an educator? Yes. Yes. I teach primary to middle school and I specifically work at international schools which are like, some of them are embassy sponsored schools, but they're basically private schools where students learn English in different countries. And I've taught in the Netherlands, Italy, Tanzania, Albania. Mm. Now I'm in Denmark. So <laughs> I'm also on a venture to open up some schools in Cape Verde, Africa. That's in progress right now, too. Amazing. I just learned about the Cape Verdeans like a, maybe about five years ago. And I was so fascinated with that history because it's an island off of Portugal, right? No, it's off of West Africa. And there's like 15 islands and 13 are inhabited. It's an archipelago and there's like many islands. But the one island that I want to want to move to and I'm looking to open schools to at is Sal Vicente. And it's the music and cultural capital of all the islands. So, yes, that's in progress. <laughs> I'm excited about that. So hopefully in the next two years. I might be applying for a job with your school. <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> done and done. <laughs> done That's and done. done. So you went to Burning Man. First, before I get into that, I have to ask this one question. What was it like living in Tanzania? Um, I was only there for about three months or so, but it changed who I am as an educator and most importantly, how I, it, it almost leveled up how I connect with children. So the school that I was in, Moshi, Tanzania, and from the campus, you could see Mount Kilimanjaro, you know, it was just there, it was just there, you know? <laughs> And there were monkeys on the campus. And now, now granted, it, it is hard living there because there's power outages and you really can't drink the water. And, you know, the food is, you know, you don't have options like you do in the U.S. And it's also a private, it was a private boarding school. But my experience is there, seeing the need that we have to return to our roots. And I'm not, I'm not speaking on like, you know, white saviorism type thing, which black people can also have black saviorism thinking that we know everything is right because we're specifically people from the U S but I just felt like a calling to that area in particular. Unfortunately, the government is not as welcoming to foreign visitors, which I totally respect because of colonization. And um, so they're making efforts to kick anyone who's a foreigner outside of the country. But at the same time, they're holding on to these really patriarchal beliefs 
that are somewhat stifling the country's progress, especially in the regarding education. But it was life changing and I absolutely would love to return. The only problem is with international schools, the school leaders are often white. <laughs> so you have someone, you know, you, you want, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm opening a school because the children need leaders who look like them, not, you know, white men who have no cultural connection or even understand the nuances of the culture, you know, not saying that because we're black, we immediately do, but we do have more of an understanding of why things are the way they are in those countries. I remember when I went to Ghana, I went to work with some people who were teaching and we were in a school and we were way up in the mountains. Like it took us eight hours to drive from Accra to where we were staying. And some of the people had never seen white people. So there were a couple yeah. of white people with us had never seen white people. I can't imagine that. And so they thought they were ghosts. And the wow. the, the lead teachers, Dr. Fuqua and Miss Betty, noticed that they wouldn't even look at them. So we literally had to stop what we were doing so they could recognize that they were actual people standing in front of them. And wow. I was like, whoa, this was so intense for me. I was like, you've never even seen a picture of a white person? Like their world had nothing to do with, I'm sure colonization impacted them in many ways, but they were in such a bubble of Africanness that they had never seen a white person. And I was just like, wow, this is intense. Yeah, they're lucky. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I just think about, <laughs> you know, how like black people go travel into in China in rural parts of China or any other Asian country. They get the same treatment. Honestly, I cannot handle that. <laughs> and when I was in Tanzania, my experiences were much different when I was by myself versus when I was with like white people. Totally different experiences. The prices were good on everything. <laughs> <laughs> the food was a little more spicy, you know. <laughs> now let yeah. me ask you this. Did they like I could have a whole conversation about being on the continent, but what questions did the Tanzanians ask you about your experience as a black woman or did you have those conversations? No, I did not have. I'm trying to think if I had any. The one woman that I got close to kind of disappointed me. <laughs> she was a black woman. And OK, let me back it up. OK, so, you know, in the Netherlands, they have this holiday called Santa Claus. And it's where Santa Claus is basically their version of, of Santa Claus. And Santa Claus looks like the Pope. And Santa Claus has these little helpers called Zwartepeten. And Zwartepeet is basically white people in blackface with Afro wigs, big hoop earrings, red lipstick. It's something, it, it still happens to right now. Like the, the Netherlands has, has been really progressive and a lot of cities have banned this tradition. However, it still exists. Up until, I mean, you still will find it on brand packaging, 
even two years ago, it's like, I want to go buy like some chocolate. And then my favorite chocolate brand has these little black face characters on it. And I'm like, well, shit, you know? <laughs> but, um, so the Netherlands has this really problematic holiday. And I met this black woman who was a teacher at the school and her husband was Dutch and she had children who were Dutch. And she came to me and she was like, you know, me and her, we had these really amazing conversations. And then the Santa Claus holiday came and I asked her, she invited me over to their house for a celebration. And I was like, hmm, don't really like that holiday. What are you planning? And she's like, oh, yeah, well, we'll have the Zwartpeten come and give out gifts. And, and I was like, will there be blackface? And she said, yes. And then I was like, girl, no, <laughs> I've built this bond with you. And then, you know, just like that, it's like, okay, she's not one. She's not the one. So unfortunately, I did not have those types of conversations or connections that I wanted to have. Not in that way. I did meet some locals who I did my best to support that had their coffee bean business. They were culturally, they were part of the Chaga tribes and they lived in the mountains and they did these random tours. And I just took a risk and went to a tour because they approached me on the street and I was like, okay, yeah. But we were vibing and I was like, okay, I'm going to trust my intuition. And I did get to see that side of their culture. But still, I, I kind of felt like they were selling me something because they knew I was from the U.S. So there's there's that, too. You know, did traveling abroad and living in different countries, did that prepare you for your Burning Man experience? You know, it did in a lot of ways. I'm not a, I've camped before, but I'm not a big camper. I would say my travels have helped affirm my identity and as far as who I am and how I present myself to other people who are not Black Americans, definitely. But I do not have a direct response for if, if my travels have affected my burn yet. So for those people that are listening, who have never heard of Burning Man before. Can you tell us about Burning Man? Wow. Okay. So Burning Man is an experiment. It's not a festival. It's not a music event. It's an, it's a social experiment where 70 to 80,000 people thus far come to this really harsh environment on a dry lake bed that is Consider it to be a desert and build a city. And for one week, basically, and the city is what you make of it. You know, you are responsible for creating the reality. You want to see something in the city, you bring it, you build it. There's something for everybody at Burning Man, just like New York City. If you want to go have Vietnamese coffee, Anywhere in New York City, you can find a place. Same at Burning Man. You want to have pancakes in the morning? <laughs> There's a camp for that, you know? 
if you want to have an orgy, there's an orgy dome. <laughs> if you want to release your transgressions or frustrations physically and you want to fight, there's the Thunderdome. So there's something for everyone. Even if you're, you don't think there is something for you, it's not just about doing drugs and hippies. There are lectures happening. There are talks. There are conversations. There are speculations of how to make the world better and what we can do as, as burners to make the world better. And I really think there's different spectrums to the principles of the 10 principles of Burning Man. Each principle has a spectrum and you just have to see where you fall. As a virgin burner, now not virgin burner, I think it's very important to understand what those principles mean and where you fall on that spectrum, whether it is radical self-reliance. What does that mean? How radically self-reliant can you be? For example, I came all the way from Europe and there's only so much at the time that I was only able to accomplish to get to the burn. And I also had a very bumpy beginning trying to even get to Playa, but that's a longer story. <laughs> <laughs> I, almost, I almost felt like I wasn't going to make it, but I was determined. And then things just started falling into place perfectly. And, you know, people talk about Playa magic and the Playa magic started happening to me before I even got to the burn. As soon as I joined Black Burner Project, the shift started happening. Things started to just fall into place and everything just felt right. I just, I just can't explain it more than, than everything just felt right. You know? <laughs> mm, I really appreciate the pictures that I saw from the Black Burner Project because when I went in 2012, aside of the Black women that were with me, I only saw one other Black woman. And there were Black men occasionally, I would see, but there was definitely no signs of the Black experience on the playa. And not that people weren't kind and welcoming, but there's a particular experience that we bring everywhere we go. And it was not there. And I understand it. I mean, the company is a white company. It's a, let's say the cultures were there, but the people weren't there. But I really want to know, what is the origin of the Black Burner Project? Yes, let's get into Aaron. Okay, so Aaron Douglas is the founder, catalyst, leading artist for Black Burner Project. She is a lifestyle photojournalist. And in 2018, she started to document the experiences of Black and Brown people on Playa. She felt that their stories needed to be told and to create a space where the misconception that Burning Man was just for white hippies could be like squashed and killed, right? So she wanted to create this space where Black and Brown people could be seen because you could not see that online. When you look at pictures of Burning Man, you see... <laughs> Basically, white people, maybe naked, maybe wearing an Indian headdress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> dusty as hell. You know, I mean, we are all dusty, but she wanted to create a space 
and show images that would inspire other brown people to come to Burning Man. And because the experience is so beyond what we could imagine, especially if you're creative, it's almost like there is no, no answer (laughs) when it comes to Burning Man. If you want it, as long as it's not harming someone else, then, you know, it can be done. So Erin started to, in 2018, she just had this radical idea to invite all the Black people she came across to show up for this photo shoot to see who would show up. And the first year, I think there were about 30 people that showed up. And the thing about the photo is that it's all spread word of mouth once you get on Playa. That's the magic of the photo. So you won't hear about where, well, we had the installation this year. You won't hear about when it will be or what time until you come across another Black person on Playa. And hopefully they'll be like, oh my gosh, have you heard about the photos? You have to be here, here, here. You know, which is what I did. Like literally every single person, <laughs> Black person <laughs> I came across. Even, even my white friends were, were like, there's a Black person. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, I was like, it would be like, hot as hell on my bike. I'm just trying to go get some ice and shit. And then they're like, there's a black person. Tell them to the photo. And I'm like, man, okay, fine. Okay. <laughs> but, how, but, so, but think about that. How ingenious is that? Because mm-hmm. it, it for, for lack of a better word, it forces people to see us and it forces us to see each other. Because exactly. in the back of your head, and then you get to, organically creating community without anybody knowing about it. So as it grows, people will just, now it's a part of the conversation. Now it's a part of the lexicon of Burning Man. And then now these camps who are predominantly white will say, oh, we don't have any black people here. So that piece right there is ingenious. (laughs) It is, you know, and be, and through her, so Erin started to interview on Instagram these experiences of Black burners. And I actually came across Erin through this travel group called Nomadness Travel Tribe. And she sat in on a panel and spoke about Burning Man. And I mean, I have to go back into when I first heard about Burning Man, which is like 2001, 2000. But over the past few years, I've started seeing more and more people who look like me going. I've always known burners. I've been to a few regionals, but the experiences that I heard were from white women and white men. And their description really didn't make it seem so appealing. But even when I look on Facebook and I'll type in, look at my posts, I typed in Burning Man to see my past posts. Going back like 10 years, I was always making comments about Burning Man on random posts, you know, every time it was time for the countdown to the man or incidents that happened. And so I feel like I've always been somewhat adjacent and just recognizing that over the years, more and more people are looking like me who attend. And also, you know, I have to shout out Fabiana from K-Viva because she led the Black Lives Matter protest a few years ago at Burning Man and was shunned by the organization. 
Like the disrespect was disrespectful and loud towards her. And there's a, a podcast I can send you that kind of documents everything that went down. But at the time, Burning Man did not want to accept that there were demographics of people, specifically Black people and brown people who had this need, you know, they're like radical inclusion. And we're saying we don't feel radically included. And they're saying, uh, hello, hello, hello. Please say that louder for the people in the back. That yes. was my thing. I was like, okay, this says radical inclusion, but everybody is not everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. So I did not see myself on the playa and I didn't feel myself. And it's not that I felt unwelcome. I got comfortable with feeling uncomfortable and I found my people because I, I went to the spiritual side. So I was going to the meditations and all those different types of things, but I didn't see myself. And so when I was like, how out of integrity is it to say radical inclusion, but you're not radically including everybody. And that's what they don't understand. And can I ask you a question? How did you get your ticket to Burning Man? Uh, Ocean Lade got it for me. Okay. I've had so many conversations with Black burners. I can count ooh, maybe 10 right now. Their ticket to Burning Man was gifted to them by someone else, more specifically by a white person. And these are amazing people like Aaron, creatives, artists. Had they not been gifted a ticket, they would not have been there. Right. Right. And had this transformative experience. So what does that say? Burning Man is about privilege. <laughs> Regardless, you spend a whole year preparing and spending all this money to live in a harsh de desert for a week. That's privilege. You know, so it definitely is a space that where there needs to be discussions. And, you know, it started with K-Viva and Fabiana leading the Black Lives Matter protests. And they came to the organization with a list of issues they wanted to have addressed. And they were turned away by Marion Goodell. And then George Floyd was murdered. Mm -hmm. And I guess they realized like, oh, there's a problem. People aren't feeling radically included. <laughs> and you know, what's interesting is so as I was researching for this interview, I like to just gather all the information because I don't know where the conversation is going to go. This lake bed is sacred land to the Native Americans. Oh, that's another. Yep. And so they yeah. have to get permission to be in this space. And the Native Americans have been in constant conversation about different things that they're having problems with. So it's really interesting that you're encroaching on other people and you're having those conversations, but you won't have it with Black people. And I was like, my mind was just like, wait a minute. So when I look at the Black Burner Project, I'm like, as usual, we are going to make space for the space that we need. And that's why this project is so important. And I know that this is your first burn and it's beautiful that you got to see it from this perspective. But I can't imagine what the other people had to go through when they said, hey, there's a problem because there's a problem. And for them to turn it away. But this 
supposed to be this open space for these conversations. Mm-hmm. We got to talk about everything. If you're going to have, you know, the S and M people allowed to do their thing <laughs> the way that they want to do it, not to sit comparison, but if everybody's supposed to have a space, then how come it's a problem for these people, our people to have a space? So let me, let me tell you how different it is this year. There is a space carved out at the orgy dome for people of color. <laughs> <laughs> It was a group fighting for that and they got it. So Burning Man, after the murder of George Floyd, they came out with their RIDE initiative. And RIDE stands for Radical Inclusion, Diversity, and Equity. And they have their whole manifesto and they have a stewardship group and they have an advisory group. Aaron Douglas is on that advisory group along with quite a few other people who have been key to getting so many tickets into the hands of black and brown people. One of the people on the advisory group, in addition to the efforts that, you know, let me just back it up. So Erin, her main ask from what she has told me was to get tickets. She wanted tickets to give to Black people to come to the burn, to give to creatives, to bring their art to the burn, to bring people who wanted to experience the playa. She wanted to get them tickets. And she, through her photos, she started in her interviews, she started to get the attention from organization because it's almost like you couldn't not notice, you know, these beautiful photos that she's taken of these Black burners and I'm so excited to see the photos that she's taken this year. <laughs> Even I was checking her like, you had time to take photos, right? <laughs> I'm so excited to see the photos that she's taken of, of Black and Brown Burners this year. So she is on the advisory board and there is quite a few other people. There's Prince Barron. He's a, a lead for the camp Yummy Ruminations. He was very vital for guiding a lot of us virgin burners and asking, answering questions that we ask, like very candid questions and opening up his space and his home to whatever we needed. There's also Neil. Neil is the one who was fundamental in establishing the multicultural people of color neighborhood. So... That turned out to be 19 camps with about 500 people and the camps were very diverse. And the thing is, a lot of people were wary because of the orgs wanting to help this neighborhood because they're like, oh, we don't want them to put all the colored people in one space, <laughs> which is a very valid concern, which is a very valid concern, right? We don't want it to look like apartheid. <laughs> they were like, yeah, we don't want it to be like the ghetto. Oh. Yeah. We don't want people to think those are actual words from camp leads who have black and brown camps mostly. But it turned out to be this beautiful thing going back to the indigenous people. So the land that Burning Man is on was the Paiutes and the Paiute tribe. And there is still so much more that can be done for them. There is a guy, Bob Tweedy, 
and he is, if I'm not mistaken, Dakota. He established the first camp of its kind called Indigenous Peoples of the World. Specifically for Indigenous people, he is Dakota Native American. So he wanted to create a space for Indigenous people to educate them on, you know, like, you know, the headdresses and stuff, and also introduce the food. So his camp offered decolonized dishes and food. Oh, wow. That were indigenous. Yeah, yes. Every time I went by his camp, though, it was closed, so I didn't get a chance to meet him, but I'm like, I'm rooting for you. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm getting chills hearing about these things. I'm like, I'm going to go back because, and like I said, not that I had this horrible experience because I didn't, but to know that it's opening up, the saddest part is we have to force it. That's the saddest part for me. But we always tend to make the best out of like we're gonna have the hottest parties. We're gonna (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna be the highest and the coolest and the most you know all of those things that we do because we take ourselves everywhere. So let's talk about the art specifically, the project itself. How (laughs) like with all of these challenges that you had, one I want to talk about your role as the on-playa program director, but also the art itself. How did that come about? So I'm not exactly sure of the direct story, (laughs) but I know that Aaron was approached either by an organization or the org itself or the Burning Man org itself to bring her art to the playa. And why not bring her photography? And she was influenced by another photojournalist who did these large-scale photo installations. I can't remember his name right now. But it's like, why? This has never been done before, you know? Large-scale photos of people on the playa. So she worked with a couple of people to develop this idea Fran Xavier is an architect who helped her quite a bit with the design and the structure. So they ended up deciding to do what was originally three photographic sculptures that were interactive, meaning that you could climb them, sit on them, chill out. It became, it's supposed to be a gathering place. And that's exactly what it was. It turned out to be perfect. I would roll up to Black Ashe and I'd see like someone I had been chatting with for the first time. So it ended up becoming this community space where you could see the whole playa from 30 feet. You could climb up. Another interactive component is that. Thank you for listening to Black Women Amplified. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and log on to blackwomenamplified.com for more information. Keep shining.